This Wellness Couch podcast is brought to you by the Wellness Couch Club. Get exclusive access to the Wellness Guys and Marcus Pierce in live events, webinars, newsletters, and more for less than two bucks a day. Go to www.thewellnesscouchclub.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, the abnormal psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to to get the best out of you. And today, we are talking to Kevin Humphreys. He's a husband and father, and he's someone who's made some really gutsy career decisions. After 20 years in education, he moved into management and then on to politics. You may have heard his name before because he was previously the Minister for Mental Health and Healthy Lifestyles, and now he's the New South Wales Minister for National Resources, Land and Water, and the New South Wales Minister for Western New South Wales. So welcome, Kevin. G'day, Carrie. Good to be with you. So what I'm really interested in is that you've made some amazing decisions. So I'd love to hear your story about that journey from education into politics. Well, there's a bit of a transition and I suppose uh, being with the abnormal psychologist, some of my decisions might have been a little bit abnormal and um, not everybody that's uh, had my background has certainly gone into politics and going into politics is a bit like threading a needle, I've got to say, as well. 20 years in education and anybody who knows that industry would know that it's quite predictable. So, um, you know, people get into routines and it can become quite comfortable and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I chose early on to get more into administration. So 15 of that 20 years I was uh, a school principal in small communities in Bogabri, uh, New South Wales. Uh, we had uh, five years in Tasmania uh, in the uh, in the Huon Valley, which was fantastic. And for the last part of my career uh, in Moree, northwest New South Wales. So, you know, after 20 years, I, I thought I'd achieved a lot of what I wanted to achieve. Um, my wife and I didn't want to leave Moree. Um, I wanted to do something different. And I was quite happy to uh, to basically go another way. So I apply all those skills that I'd learnt uh, through education, particularly relating to people in terms of administration, running a, a business, but also being able to, to, one, solve problems for people and take advantage of opportunities and hopefully, hopefully make uh, my community a better place. And one of the things about living in uh, country areas is that people don't often have a lot of choice. And one of the things that we worked our way through with the community is that people wanted a few more choices about how their children were being educated, their level of involvement, um, and that, that appealed to me, so working with people. Um, I set up a, a company for, for 12 months. Basically, I was just going to do anything for 12 months, but uh, in, in rural areas, there's often a middle management or senior management um, deficit. Uh, we get a lot of people th- flowing through places like Moree. Uh, so I picked up uh, quite a bit of work, I've got to say, working under a management consultancy banner uh, in, uh, in the agri-sector, in the cotton industry, in the aged care sector, uh, I got highly involved with Aboriginal employment, which was a, a key issue for me staying in Moree, uh, and also working for a number of private uh, companies. So what started out as a 12-month exercise, um, I, I ended up um, more than gainfully employed for another five years So before I went into politics. But it did allow me an opportunity to look at um, other industries, 
uh, work more closely with people and and basically step out of that comfort zone which was uh, which was the education system um, along the way uh, did I meet a couple of great people I did who influenced me politically and one of the areas that I became interested in living in more ease that if you want to be a part of social change and helping redirect resources and services and improving generally a community's uh, welfare, not just individuals, that the political system is there to drive that, whether it's in local government, uh, state or, or federal government. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be involved in some regional development activity along the way. Uh, and that basically is what got me uh, enticed in, into thinking about politics. It wasn't an overnight decision. It wasn't something that I naturally was basically aiming to achieve, uh, but looking at um, the number of political parties uh, that were around at the time, it's when I got involved in the country party because I felt that they had a, a mandate in the sense that they had sole focus on the regions. Um, we needed to improve and continue to improve our voice in the political system and I wanted to be a part of, of how you could influence that. So I suppose it was a bit like an apprenticeship um, and I'd only just say that a lot of people say in politics, why did you go into it? Because someone said to me I should do it. I don't, I don't uh, carry that attitude at all. I think you've got to want to do it. Um, I'm a motivated type person and don't uh, shy away from you know, challenges. Uh, but it's something you've really got to want to do. And if you're driven by wanting to improve your community, usually that's a pretty good start. Don't do it because someone else uh, said, oh, you'd be good at politics. Definitely. I think it's a bit of a hard road to take if you're just thinking, mm, that, might, that sounds good. So can you take us back to what it was like to to sign up or I don't know how it works that you decide to get in politics? What, what were you thinking to yourself? Were you thinking that this would be difficult or was there a family meeting when you finally got down to signing the bits of paper or whatever it is that you need to do? Tell us about what you were thinking and what you were doing that gave you, I guess, the, the guts to, to go and take on such a public figure role. Yeah, well, obviously I'd built up a pretty good network in and around Moree and around the region. Um, the people that uh, were wanting to support me didn't necessarily want a farmer, even though they were largely from farming and related businesses. And uh, they wanted somebody that understood the community, understood the business drivers in our area, someone that would be a good advocate, but didn't necessarily come out of one pecuniary interest. So... Um, you know, having worked in the community for quite some time and being a part of that change, I suppose people could see, well, this guy sort of knows how to bring about change, work with community uh, and, and is here for the longer haul. So I think that's important and in, in political parties, certainly in the National Party, uh, the process is quite defined. You can't just lob in and say, I want to join the party, uh, uh, vote for me. You have to go through a pre-selection process, which I did, had a good chat to my wife about it because uh, in country areas, if you do commit to politics, you've got to spend a lot of time on the road. You've got to be physically present in communities. They want to know who you are and they want to know what you stand for. And I had a bit of a saying, which I have learned one thing, is that when you knock on someone's door, they'll usually be quite sceptical about you know what you're wanting to achieve. If you go back a second time, they'll become a lot more interested in you because you know they know you're interested in them. And if you, if you see them a third time, usually they'll offer you a cup of tea or a beer. So, you know, build relationships with people, and I yeah. quite enjoyed that. So the pre-selection process, back to that, uh, we decided to have a, have a crack for the seat of Barwon, which is a big electorate. 
Um, so the way the system works, anyone within the party can stand for pre-selection. So you've got to go through a whole process before you even can say you want to represent and are indeed given the honour of, of, of representing your party. Um, so that involved probably four or five months of travelling around the area and meeting our membership. Uh, we've probably got the most democratic uh, process in the country where any member can can turn up to vote for a, a candidate. Um, and my pre-selection or our pre-selection was in Canamble. There were five other candidates. I think we had 400 people turned up from right around the region that were all members. Pretty serious process. Uh, it can be a bit stressful. Uh, but again, we all got on well, all, all my fellow uh, candidates. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get up on that day. So that gave me the right to then stand for the Nationals in the seat of Barwon. Um, it was a different electorate. Um, some had come in from the west. I'd lost part of the eastern part of the electorate, so it was quite a diverse area and a new candidate. So how did you cope with that stress? I imagine there's a fair bit of anxiety leading up to something like that because even though it's with your peers and you all get along well, can you tell us how you cope with that stress at that time? Yeah, look, it can be a bit stressful. I, I, you know, Stress is part of a normal part of daily life. Um, but, you know, when you've committed to a track and pretty much we put our lives on hold for 12 months to travel around the region to get to know the issues and to get to know particularly our members because, first of all, you needed their support. Uh, because it was a new electorate, we wanted, a, a, from a party perspective, an early pre-selection so the candidate could get around to then pick up on the issues that are many and diverse in, in our part of the world. So, you know, putting your life on hold, uh, that's stressful enough. Our kids were uh, uh, away at boarding school at, at the time, so, you know, you've also got income pressures as well. Uh, that That's real, but we sort of worked ourselves into a position where uh, I could do that, so... Uh, you know, if we uh, if we succeeded, then then good on it. You know, happy days, and let's get on with the next uh, stage of becoming elected. Um, if not, well, I would have been starting again. Would have had to have made another career choice. But our aim was not to leave uh, Moree. There was some unfinished business here that I wanted to be part of. And uh, having lived most of my life in Western New South Wales, very much at home in, in that area. So on one hand, you know, you got a little bit of anxiety about. You know, am I doing the right thing? Uh, am I doing the right thing by my family, uh, let alone the community? So you know, you really have got to invest time in in that issue. What helps you with stress, I suppose, is if you take the job seriously, which obviously we did. You start investing a whole lot of time in other people, and you start to become a little bit more confident because you can see that the, the people are looking for change. They're looking for like improvement. Yeah, and one of the things the, the National Party does, I've got to say, uh, I would have more members in my party across the electorate than probably just about anywhere in the country. Uh, and the people that were joining the party were young people. Uh, I had more Aboriginal members of the Moree branch and in my electorate than anywhere else in the country. So it wasn't just about taking one group with us. It was about uh, you know helping provide a platform for political representation on, on a whole lot of fronts. And coming from a community that's always been a bit challenged uh, in places like Moree. It's, it's, it's had a bit of a bad rap, as you know, um, for not necessarily the right reasons. In some cases, it needed to, uh, to, to shape up. So, you know, shying uh, away from that was not, not on my agenda. So, yeah, a bit of stress, but keeping busy, I think, was, was a, an issue for me and just knowing uh, that my confidence was growing, that we were doing the right thing by exposing myself more to to other people's ideas and, and what they wanted to see improved. 
So as you progressed, it's almost like motivation where it it sort of becomes something within itself. So sometimes motivation is not there initially, but the more you start to see results, the more the motivation comes. So it sounds like you had a bit of anxiety and a bit of stress, but as you started to see um, people support you and and progress unfold, your confidence started to build. So that that's pretty big goals over such a short time. So it was about 12 months from deciding to go for pre-selection and then, then what happened next? Yeah, probably a bit, bit longer than that, but you're right. I mean, part of the the, uh, the initial phase as a, as a potential politician is you need positive reinforcement back from the community over time. If you don't get that, that reinforcement, it should tell people that maybe I should try something else. So if you're not connecting early on, politics is going to be very, very difficult, and usually you won't be successful. People who come in on single issues, for instance, aren't necessarily going to get the support that, that they think because uh, not everybody is, is totally single-issued. In fact, uh, people have a broad area of usually of concern. They might fixate on things for some time, but I suppose my uh, my motivation was being driven at the time by the fact that you know, we were getting some encouragement. You know, you build confidence along the way. That makes you try harder too, I suppose. And uh, uh, in terms of wanting to be successful, you do need positive reinforcement along the way. Therefore, surround yourself with positive people. Uh, you're not always going to agree uh, either way with some other people that you meet along the way. As long as you treat them respectfully, uh, they'll respect you as well. So um, it, it's a bit of a mix because we haven't got a bit of a thick skin in, in this game either. You you will cop criticism. Or, or, there's no issue with that. And that's not always easy. But as long as the positives outweigh the uh, the knockbacks, you, you'll, you'll stay in front and that's what keeps people motivated. So tell us more about that, like, Launching yourself into a public figure space, I imagine, is quite scary, as in you're opening yourself up to not only that positive support that you mentioned before, but you mentioned having a thick skin. How do you cope with being so accessible to people? Because imagine as a politician, you're supposed to be accessible, but that makes you open to everyone and everything that they've got to say. How do you cope with that? Well, uh, I've certainly learned that um, most advice is free and you get a fair bit of it. So on a whole number of fronts, and they, they, look, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I suppose initially I spent a lot more time listening than speaking and I think a lot of what people want from uh, from us as politicians initially is an ear. They want to be able to discuss things and, and basically vent sometimes because often people come uh, to, to the political representative because something's gone wrong. You don't necessarily get... A lot of uh, people coming back saying, yeah, that's great, did a good job, thanks for doing that. So, you know, people are often 95 metres down the track, I say, heading for a car crash. And uh, they're a lot of the people that we tend to see uh, in my part of the world. But you've got to get over that. So part of... How do you do that? What do you do? Well, you've got to stay listening. There's no doubt about that. And part of the, the pressure of the job is absorbing people's frustration. And in some cases, their pain, and in some cases, their anger. You're not necessarily going to be able to provide them with an initial answer. But I think if people have been through that uh, that exercise of being able to talk to someone, because often these people can't talk to, to people around them or they've had doors shut uh, in, in their face for a whole lot of reasons, whether it's personal, financial, work-wise, um, if you can work through that, that exercise initially and then go back to people at a later stage, not too far down the track, that tells people that, that you care. And to be honest, that's that's the fundamental you know, underlying principle. People will support you if uh, 
if they know you care. And that's one thing I've learned along the way, that don't, uh, don't underestimate people's ability to, to pay you back in, in a good way. Um, and don't just make a judgment on people's uh, first encounter, which can often be negative. Uh, so if you're prepared to invest time in people and communities, I've got to say, over time, um, you may not always agree, as I say, but you know you can get to a, a situation where you can have decent conversations, you can help people along the way, and ultimately that's the enriching feedback you get as, as a politician. You know, when you know... Uh, something has been achieved because you were able to be a part of that, uh, albeit just helping people along the way, because most people will resolve their own issues, I think, if you give them the responsibility and the tools. Our job is to help facilitate that. And um, most of the people I deal with on a day-to-day basis, it's a lot of little issues. It's not the big macro, you know, uh, financial or economic status of the state. That helps because you've got to be able to provide the resources to help people along the way. Um, but it's the little things, I think, that count. And if you sweat the small stuff, the bigger stuff becomes becomes easier. Uh, and I love talking about my experiences and what I've learned along the way from from other people and certainly communities because I think uh, uh, the human spirit, really, part of our privilege is, is getting underneath that skin. People don't have deep conversations anymore. You know, we're too busy being entertained by a whole lot of media content the personal relationship uh, uh, side of our lives has has dissipated I think over time and people are yearning for that and yeah it's great to be a part of that along the way. So that's that social engagement that we often hear about that's often lacking across the lifespan is that we're not necessarily being engaged in our own experiences let alone our neighbours or the community so tell me a bit more about your experience of communities when I, I've always wanted to be a psychologist, I can't remember not wanting to be a psychologist. And one of the things I used to be curious about was even people getting on a bus and wondering why my fellow classmates would choose that seat over that seat and, and, and wondering about human behaviour. Can you tell me about any patterns or other similarities when you go from one community to another? You have quite a large electorate. Is there always a leader or always a squeaky wheel? Are, are there patterns across communities? Oh, no, I think I think you're right. Um, you know, when I was in the area of mental health and healthy lifestyles, I was visiting communities for other reasons. Um, communities that, uh, and I'll leave leadership alone for a minute because I think that is fundamentally important, but where you had healthier communities, usually they were creative communities, they were innovative communities, uh, they had terrific support for the arts, uh, they had strong sporting communities, uh, a lot of the entities, whether they were schools or whether they were sporting clubs or indeed social clubs or organisations, weren't one-dimensional. So there were two or three generations of people in, involved uh, and they were quite welcoming. But you, you can definitely, definitely see what are the attributes of healthy communities, whether they're small or large. Intra- introspective communities that have sort of moved out on their own where you know, consumption of alcohol was excessive, uh, high unemployment... Uh, a, a very uh, negative, inward-looking perspective on themselves, uh, highly destructive, no doubt about that. Uh, and uh, those communities are characterised by, I've got to say, uh, poorer lifespans um, and poor quality of life outcomes. So I live in a and work in a and, and travel around an area that's got all of that. So we've got very healthy communities. We've got communities that are still bordering on dysfunction. Uh, but I've got to say, generally, people are becoming far more aware of lifestyle related issues on on the health side 
and there is an internal drive amongst most communities to to improve their lot. What's the difference? Well, leadership, go back to that issue. Uh, and leadership isn't necessarily out the front with the big red flag, come follow me. Um, but a lot of our communities that are much more healthy are characterised by stable leadership, people that uh, are in positions where they're respected, can make a decision and are good at working and bringing people together. And progress, you'll always make progress when you can say we. Uh, if we're working together as a group as opposed to I or, or they or, as I say, take the butt out of it, you can always come up with a good idea but as soon as someone says, but this is why we can't do it, I say take the butt out. Um, there's always an excuse of why we can't do things. So for rural communities, particularly some of our more isolated communities, uh, leadership, I think, is is absolutely paramount. That's why I spend a bit of time, obviously, in Aboriginal communities. It's why elders are important. It's why we need to reinstate that traditional uh, leadership you know, from an Indigenous perspective in, in a lot of our communities um, because a lot of that's been eroded. It's why we need good um, principals in our schools, good health officials, the local sergeant who knows his or her, her community, the local, local farming groups, um, right through to, to our health facilities uh, and everything else that makes our communities tick. So there are some definite traits, there's no doubt about that, uh, and, and leadership is, is, is one, but uh, I wouldn't underestimate the things that galvanise communities like arts, the sports. Um, they can be huge positive changes in our community. And the last thing I look for is where you've got a community that's got a high level of volunteerism. So people that want to belong to their community, and there's a large number of those, I can tell you, where the communities are still in charge of their own destiny. They're not relying on any one particular agency or outside uh, entity to, to basically devolve responsibility for the operation of that community. So yeah, volunteering, I think, is a very, very healthy sign in our community. It's such an interesting way of looking at things because it's almost the same as you could view an individual. So the individual who's well-balanced, creative, participates in movement, feels connected to a community, you know, it's almost reflected in that bigger organism that the more balanced the community, the more balanced the individual and the more balanced the individual, the more balanced the community. So certainly food for thought there. Um, there's a couple of signature questions we have, Kevin. I hope you can answer them for us. So one of those is what have you learned about people through your roles in leadership from being a principal through management and now in politics what have you learned about other people yeah good question I mean most of what I do is about people um, I think one of the things for me is that uh, you're wanting people to trust you and a lot of people say oh, I can't trust politicians can't trust people in certain positions because they abuse power or whatever uh, that sort of gnaws away at me a little bit because that's not what drives me I think what I've learned about other people is that if I want people to trust me, I've got to trust them. Uh, and that's a difficult high-order emotion that not too many people are, are good at doing. So I think the best thing that, that we can do is, is devolve, which drives me politically now, is devolve more responsibility back onto people and onto communities in particular. And I think the more you take away uh, responsibility, as in personal responsibility, and community responsibility, you weaken people and you weaken communities, you weaken families. Um, so it, it, it's not a tough love thing, but um, certainly uh, my biggest learning experience is you've got to trust people, you've got to trust communities, 
you've got to give them the resources and, and the skills in some cases to allow them to get on with their lives because ultimately that's about giving them more choice, more freedoms and uh, I think um, overwhelmingly people will respond to that in a positive way. So the opposite I've learned is don't pull responsibility away from people, uh, don't take away uh, their rights to, to make decisions or or take up options and uh, that's a difficult it's a difficult thing to explain but uh, along the way as I say people say as a government what are you going to do for us and and my response in some communities well I'm going to get out of your way and I'm going to say to the government get out of their way um, and there's a few communities around uh, that are like that Lightning Ridge is a good example where it's not run by uh, bureaucracy it, it's not run by high levels of uh, of um, of intervention, it's largely settled by people that have come from all around the country. Some of them have been involved in some pretty interesting stuff too. But at the end of the day, it's quite an eclectic community. Uh, you leave them alone, they get on with it, and it works. So, uh, not saying that's going to work for everybody, but um, yeah, learning to trust people, I think, has been the big learning curve for me because people that get into these positions, you want to control things and giving over on that. Uh, isn't uh, isn't always easy, and you know the longer you stay in politics, the the more difficult that becomes because you, you start to become part of the system. Uh, and I live in a part of the world where the system doesn't always work, um, and that's the advantage. You you can uh, be a little bit more creative, and you're exposed to people that are far more innovative than I ever will be, and I find that quite refreshing. I've got to say. Very interesting. So what about you? What have you learned about yourself through your journey? Oh, I could say not much, but <laughs> I mean, you've got to take time to reflect, I suppose. Um, you know, I'm on the road a bit, so you, you, you have, often have time to think about, you know, what am I doing or, you know, why am I out here doing what I do? Um, at the end of the day, I just say to people, if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Uh, I enjoy my job. Well, it's far more than a job. It's a privilege, really, uh, in, in many ways. Um, if you didn't enjoy it, they don't don't go there. So, you know, I suppose along the way I've enjoyed doing what I'm doing and I've learnt to enjoy it as well. So, um, you know, I like mixing with people. You like celebrating with them when they've had a win or, you know, when, when things don't go so well, you've got to be there as well. So along the way you... Uh, what do you learn about yourself well I actually like being around other people I enjoy the social context of the job um, I've, I enjoy probably uh, solving problems more than than I initially did I probably was doing that when I was in in schools as well uh, I, I absolutely get a buzz out of seeing young people get ahead and achieving doing what you're doing you know diversifying along the way and when you've been in this job long enough you can start to see and track families and communities and, and groups along the way. And that's the privilege, again, of the job. You can see progress being made. Uh, you can see innovation being undertaken. I mean, you only have to get into the agri-sector in our part of the world to, to see how people, you know, in some cases can make something out of nothing uh, or all the people that make up our communities, all our tradies and, and people that work on the frontline services, they really are committed and... You know, I suppose you learn along the way that you're just part of, you know, you're just a cog really in something that's far greater than you and I think that's important. Uh, and sometimes it's better to just stand back and let it happen. Uh, what do you learn about yourself? Well, you can't control everything. You like to think you can, obviously, along the way. 
So sometimes for people like me, I've got to, I've got to step back and accept the fact you're not going to solve everything. Uh, and sometimes you're not always right. Um, some people say that's why you play golf every now and again because it's a good game where you get humbled. But um, you know, that's part of it. But yeah, look, it's it's a journey of self discovery along the way. You get a little bit hopefully wiser um you know certainly my wife's a lot wiser these days i can tell you because she she has a great ability to keep me uh keep me in check and keep me grounded um and you you learn that along this journey you do need people close to you that do know you and can give you actually honest feedback um people who go down my track the danger is you become a bit delusional too at, at times I know it's an interesting word in the mental health uh, realm, but it, it's not unreal. I think everybody is a bit delusional at some stages, but because we get exposed to so much so often, um, and you can get carried away with uh, the whole, you know, political power games that some people want to get into. So very, very important to have a, a good network around you that that are honest and can give you good feedback. It's like I say, everybody needs a therapist. Um, that can be your next door neighbour, your wife, or, or your best friend. As long as you've got a number of those people, I think that that's fundamentally important. So that leads me into asking if if there's anything, or three daily rituals, or weekly things, or even long term things that you do that keeps you grounded, or relaxed, or focused. Yeah, there are there are a couple of things I've got to say. Um, I'm a person that played a lot of sport, so I'm used to physical exercise. Um, my mental well-being is, is gets challenged every now and again I've got to say because there are highs and lows in the job uh, particularly when things aren't always always going as well or you know look at the moment I mean the majority of my area is still in an absolute rip-roaring drought um, you know you, you're working with people that are not going so well and you know at times that gets people like me down as well I've got to say so you're trying to work uh, your way through that but at the end of the day one of the things that does keep me grounded is I need to physically exercise I need to do things um, and whether that's through organized sport which is not not uh, not terrific for me because you're never in one place at the one time but I've got to get out sometimes I, I will go for long walks regularly um, just did my Achilles uh, tendon so that's knocked me around a bit um, but getting back on track there but I yeah, for me physical exercise is important and every now and again, I'll take time out to uh, to particularly do something uh, with the family. My wife's very good at that. Where you know, a couple of times a year, we'll just go away for the weekend, just reconnect. Uh, when I'm at home, nothing better than cooking. I like cooking. Glass of red wine, sitting down with uh, my bride. Um, she's fantastic. So there's a few things I do in a ritual. You try and stick to that. Um, sometimes I'll just get in the car. Uh, I've got an old V8 ute. I'll just get out on the road and uh, and go and talk to people that normally I may uh, not do, or I'll go and stay at a particular pub that I like. There's a few around the place that I've been known to frequent, but um, yeah, just where you've got good people and you can go and sort of just talk about anything but politics. So there's a bit of bit of everything really, um, and I always try and have a book on the go, something completely different. Uh, that uh, that takes you away from politics because we get bombarded with a lot of information um, and a lot of requests. So it's a diff- it's a mixture, I suppose, for me of doing something physical, staying socially connected to the people that are close to you, and doing a few offbeat things every every now and again. That's great. That's some great tips there. So 
if anyone wants to find you, where's the best way to find information about you? Some people would say the Armatory Hotel, but <laughs> which is in the middle of nowhere, but great people. No, just on the on the website. So the officers um, currently familiar Moree, Cobar, and uh, hopefully uh, Broken Hill also after the the March election. So I'll I'll be the only electorate that has the three officers, and our staff do a fantastic job in connecting people up. But certainly a lot of my communication is is via the internet. So you know whether it's uh, through the website through the Barwon website, people can always get hold of me there uh, or, or through Facebook. So what's the website, what, the three Ws? Well, that's just, just Barwon uh, at parliament.com. Barwon at parliament.com. Okay, so thank you so much today. That's been great fun hearing a bit of behind the scenes of politics. So I hope the listener you found today um, valuable. Don't forget to support the show by telling your friends or you can go to our Facebook page at Carrie Thompson Casey, that's Thompson without a P, and like us there and give us your feedback. You can also subscribe to the show in iTunes. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you like the show. You can also support us by going to the website carriethompsoncasey.com. Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realise your potential. Take care. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. 2015 marks perhaps the most important event the Wellness Couch has ever conducted. We've had two sold-out wellness summits these last years, but honestly, nothing will come close to our first ever wellness breakthrough. Your favourite Wellness Couch experts, the Up For A Chat girls, Quirky Cookies Joe Whitten, Stu Hayes, Marcus Pierce, and of course the Wellness Guys are all gathering in Dandong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough in February. For more information, go to www.thewellnesscouch.com. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.